Luke chapter 20, verse 1 through chapter 21, verse 4, verses 1 through 8. And it came to pass that on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes came upon him with the elders, and spake unto him, saying, Tell us, by what authority dost thou these things? Or who is he that gave thee this authority? And he answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then believed ye him not? But, and if we say of men, all the people will stone us, for they be persuaded that John was a prophet. And they answered that they could not tell whence it was. And Jesus said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Burkett notes, The Pharisee, having often quarreled at our Savior's doctrine before, they call in question his mission and authority now although they might easily have understood his divine mission by his divine miracles. For Almighty God never empowered any to work miracles that were not sent by him. Our blessed Savior, understanding their design, gives them no direct answer, but replies to their question by asking them another. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? That is, was it of divine institution or of human invention? plainly implying that the calling of them who call themselves the minister of God ought to be from God. No man ought to take that honor upon him, but he that was called of God, as was Aaron. Hebrews 5.8 The Pharisee replied that they could not tell whence John had his mission and authority, which was a manifest untruth. They knew it, but durst not own it. By refusing to tell the truth, they fall into a lie against the truth. Thus one sin ensnares and draws men on to the commission of more. Such as will not speak exact truth according to their knowledge, they fall into the sin of lying against their knowledge and their conscience. Our Savior answers them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. He did not say, I cannot or I will not tell you, but I do not, I need not tell you, because the miracles which I work before you are a sufficient demonstration of my divine commission that I am sent of God among you, because God never set the seal of his omnipotency to a lie, nor empowered any impostor to work real miracles. Verses 9-19 through 19. Then he began to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, and led it forth to husbandmen, and went into a far country for a long time. And at the season he sent a servant to the husbandmen, that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandman beat him, and sent him away empty. And again he sent another servant, and they beat him also, and entreated him shamefully, and sent him away empty. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and cast him out. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be that they will reverence him when they see him. But when the husbandman saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard, and killed him. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen, and shall give the vineyards to others. And when they heard of it, they said, God forbid. And he beheld them, and said, What is this, then, that is written, The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. Whoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken." 
but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him, and they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. Burkett notes, In the parable before us, the Jewish church is compared to a vineyard, God the Father to a householder. His planting, pruning, and fencing his vineyard denotes his care to furnish his church with all needful help and means to make it fruitful. His letting it out to the husbandman signifies the committing the care of his church to the priests and Levites, the public pastors and governors of the church. His servants are the prophets and apostles, whom he sent from time to time, to admonish them to bring forth answerable fruits to the cost which God expended on them. His son is Jesus Christ, whom the rulers of the Jewish church slew and murdered. So that the design and scope of the parable is to discover to the Jews, particularly to the Pharisees, their obstinate impenitency under all the means of grace, their bloody cruelty towards the prophets of God, their tremendous guilt in crucifying the Son of God, for all which God would unchurch them finally, ruin their nation, and set up a church among the Gentiles that should bring forth much better fruit than the Jewish church ever did. From the whole note, one, that the church is God's vineyard. A vineyard is a place enclosed, a place well planted, well fruited, and exceedingly dear and precious to the planter and the owner of it. Two, that as dear as God's vineyard is unto him, in the case of barrenness and unfruitfulness, it is in great danger of being destroyed and laid waste by him. Three, that the only way and course to engage God's care over his vineyard and to prevent its being given to other husbandsmen is to give him the fruits of it. Tis but a vineyard that God lets out. It is no inheritance. No people ever had so many promises of God's favor as the Jews, nor ever enjoyed so many privileges whilst they continued in his favor as they did. But for rejecting Christ and his holy doctrine, they are a despised, scattered people throughout the world. See the note on Matthew twenty-one thirty-nine forty, verses 20 through 26. And they watched him and sent forth spies, which would feign themselves just men, that they might take hold of his words, so that they might deliver him unto the power and authority of the governor. And they asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any, but teachest the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? But he perceived their craftiness and said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Show me a penny, whose image and superscription hath it? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. And they could not take hold of his words before the people, and they marveled at his answer and held their peace. Burkett notes, both St. Matthew and St. Mark tell us that these spies sent forth to ensnare our Savior about paying tribute to Caesar were the Pharisees and the Herodians. The former were against paying tribute, looking upon the Roman emperor as a usurper. The latter were for it. These two opposite parties concluded that, let our Savior answer how he would, they should entrap him. If, to please the Pharisee, he denied paying tribute, then he's accused of sedition. If to gratify the Herodians, he voted for paying tribute, then he's pronounced an enemy to the liberty of his country and exposed to a popular odium. But observe with what wisdom and caution our Lord answers them. He calls for the Roman penny and asks them, 
Whose superscription it bear? They answer, Caesar's. Then says he, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. As if he had said, Your admitting the Roman coin amongst you is an evidence that you are under subjection to the Roman emperor, because the coining and imposing of money is an act of sovereign authority. Therefore, you having owned Caesar's authority over you by accepting of his coin amongst you, give unto him his just dues, and render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Learn hence, one, that our Savior was no enemy to magistry and civil government. There was no truer paymaster of the king's dues than he that was king of kings. He preached it and he practiced it. Matthew 17.27 2. Where a kingdom is in subjection to a temporal prince, whether by descent, election, or conquest, he deserves the title. The subject ought, from a principle of conscience, to pay tribute to him. 3. That as Christ is no enemy to the civil rights of princes, and as religion exempts none from paying their civil dues, so princes should be as careful not to rob him of his divine honor, as he is, not to wrong them of their civil rights. As Christ requires all his followers to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, so princes should oblige all their subjects to render unto God the things that are God's. Verses 27 through 38. Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If any man's brother die having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. There were therefore seven brethren, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her to wife, and he died childless. And the third took her, and in the like manner the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry, and are given in marriage. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels, and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush, when he calleth the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior, having put the Pharisees and Herodians to silence in the foregoing verses, here the Sadducees encounter him. This sect denied the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the body, and as an objection against both, they propound a case to our Savior of a woman that had seven husbands. They demanded whose wife of the seven this woman should be at the resurrection. As if they had said, If there be a resurrection of bodies at the great day, surely there will be a resurrection of relations too, and the other world will be like this, in which men will marry as they do here. And if so, whose wife of the seven shall this woman be, they all having an equal claim to her? Now our Savior, for resolving of this question, first shows the different state of men in this and the other world. The children of this world, says Christ, marry and are given in marriage. But in the resurrection they do neither. As if our Lord had said, After men have lived a while in this world, they die, and therefore marriage is necessary to maintain a succession of mankind. But in the other world, men shall become immortal and live forever, and then the reason of marriage will wholly cease. For when men can die no more, 
there will be no need of any new supplies of mankind. Secondly, our Savior having got clear of the Sadducees' objection by taking away the ground and foundation of it, he produces an argument for the proof of the soul's immortality and the body's resurrection. Thus, those to whom Almighty God pronounces himself a God are alive. But God pronounces himself a God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, many hundred years after their bodies were dead. Therefore, their souls are yet alive. Otherwise, God could not be their God, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. From the whole, note one, that there is no opinion so absurd, no error so monstrous, that having had a mother will die for lack of a nurse. The beastly opinion of the mortality of the soul and the annihilation of the body find Sadducees to profess and propagate it. Learn, too, the certainty of another life after this, in which men shall be eternally happy or intolerably miserable, according as they have behaved themselves here. Though some men live like beasts, they shall not die like them, neither shall their last end be like theirs. Note 3. The glorified saints in the morning of the resurrection shall be like unto the glorious angels, not like them in essence and nature, but like them in their properties and qualities, namely, in holiness and purity, in immortality and incorruptibility, and also like them in their way and manner of living. They shall no more stand in need of meat or drink than the angels do, but shall live the same heavenly and immortal lives that the angels live. Note 4. That all those that are in covenant with God, whose God the Lord is, their souls do immediately pass into glory, and their bodies at the resurrection shall be sharers in the same happiness with their souls. If God be just, the soul must live, and the body must rise. For good men must be rewarded, and wicked men punished. God will most certainly, one time or another, plentifully reward the righteous and punish the evildoers. But this being not always done in this life, the justice of God requires it to be done in the next. Verses 39-44 through 44. Then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. And after that they durst not ask him any questions at all. And he said unto them, How say thee that Christ is David's son? And David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord. How is he then his son? Burkett notes, The design of our blessed Savior in propounding this question to the Pharisees, how Christ could be David's son, when David by inspiration called him Lord, was twofold. One, to confute the people's erroneous opinion touching the person of the Messiah, who they thought should be a mere man of the stock and lineage of David only, and not the Son of God. Two, to strengthen the faith of his disciples touching his Godhead, against the time that they should see him suffer and rise again. The place Christ alludes to is Psalm 61, the verse the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. The Lord, that is, God the Father, said to my Lord, that is, God the Son, who is to be incarnate, whom David calleth his Lord, both as God and as mediator, his Lord by a right of creation and redemption also. Now the question our Savior puts to the Pharisees is this, how Christ could be both David's Lord and David's son, no son being Lord of his own father. Therefore, if Christ were David's sovereign, he must be more than man, more than David's son. As man, he was David's son. As God-man, he was David's Lord. 
Note hence, one, that though Christ was truly and really man, yet he was more than a mere man. He was a Lord unto, and the salvation of, his own forefathers. Note, too, that the only way to reconcile the scripture, which speaks concerning Christ, is to believe and acknowledge him to be both God and man in one person. The Messiah, as man, was to come forth out of David's loins, but as God-man, was David's Lord, his Sovereign and Savior. As man, he was David's son. As God-man, he was Lord of his own Father. Verses 45-47 through 47. Then, in the audience of all the people, he said unto his disciples, Beware of the scribes, which desire to walk in long robes, and love greetings in the market, and the highest seats in the synagogue, and the chief rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses, and for a show make long prayers. The same shall receive greater damnation. Burkett notes, Observe here what it is our Savior condemns, not civil salutations in the marketplace, not the chief seats in the synagogue, not the uppermost rooms at feasts, but their fond affecting of these things, and their ambitious aspiring after them. It was not their taking, but their loving the uppermost rooms at feasts, which our Savior condemns. God is the God of order. There may and ought to be a precedency among persons. God commands us to give honor to whom honor is due. But pride and ambition are detestable and hateful vices, especially in such as of preachers, and ought to be the patterns of humility. Observe, too, how our Savior contemns the Pharisee for their gross hypocrisy and coloring over their abominable covetousness with a specious pretense of religion, making long prayers in the temple and synagogues for widows, and thereupon persuading them to give bountifully to Corban, that is, the common treasury for the temple, some part of which was employed for their maintenance. Whence we learn that it is no new thing for designing hypocrites to cover the foulest transgression with the cloak of religion. Thus the Pharisees made their prayers a cloak and cover for their covetousness. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. And he looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. And he said, Of a truth I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast into the offerings of God. But she of her own penury hath cast in all the living that she had. Burkett notes, At the door of the temple, through which all the people passed in and out, who came up three times a year at the solemn feasts to worship Almighty God in his own house, there was a chest set, like the poor man's box in some of our churches, into which all persons cast their freewill offerings and oblations, which were employed either for the use of the poor or for the service of the temple. And what was thus given, our Savior calls an offering to God. Verse 4. These of their abundance have cast in unto the offerings of God. Thence learn that what we rightly give to the relief of the poor, or for the service and towards the support of God's public worship, is consecrated to God, and as such is accepted of him, and ought to be esteemed by us. Observe, too, with what pleasure and satisfaction our Savior sets himself to view those offerings. He beheld the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. Hence note that our Savior sees with pleasure and beholds with delight whatever we have hearts to give unto him, whether for the relief of his members or for the support of his service. Our blessed Savior, while now thy sittest at thy Father's right hand in glory, 
thou seest every hand that is stretched forth to the relief of the poor members here on earth. Verse 2. But a certain poor widow cast in two mites. Several circumstances relating both to the person and the action are here observable, as one, the person that offered, was a widow. The married woman is under the careful supervision of her husband. If she spends, he earns. But the widow hath no hands but her own to work for her. Two, she was a poor widow. Poverty added to the sorrow of her widowhood. She had no rich jointure to live upon. It is some alleviation of the sorrow that attends widowhood when the hand is left full, though the bed be left empty. This widow was needy and desolate, but yet gives. Some in her circumstances would have looked upon themselves as having a right to receive what was given by others, rather than give anything themselves. Observe 3. Her bounty and munificence in giving. Her two mites are proclaimed by Christ to be more than all the rich man's talents. More in respect to the mind and affection of the giver, more with respect to the portion of the gift, a mite to her being more than pounds to others. Pounds were little to them, two mites were all to her. She leaves herself nothing, so that the poor woman gave not only more than any of them all, but more than they all. Christ's eye looked out at once into the bottom of her purse and into the bottom of her heart, and judged of the offering rather by the mind of the giver than by the value of the gift. From this instance we learn, one, that the poorer, yea, the poorest sort of people are not exempt from good works, but even they must and ought to exercise charity according to their ability. This poor widow, that had not a pound, nay, not a penny, presents God with a farthing. Two, that in all works of pious charity which we perform, God looks at the heart, the will, and the affection of the giver, more than at the largeness and liberality of the gift. It is not said, The Lord loveth a liberal giver, but a cheerful giver. He accepteth the gifts according to what a man hath, not according to what he hath not. O our God, the poorest of thy servants have two mites also, a soul and a body. Persuade and enable us to offer them both unto thee, though they are thine already, yet thou wilt graciously accept them. O how happy shall we be in thy acceptation!